Howdy. Howdy. I want to tell you something uh, before we pray. Something that struck me about something my friend said back there about not going to seminary. This is what I have to say about that. Uh, I've been to seminary three times. And I've known a lot of people that go to seminary. And uh, love is the currency and wisdom of the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, those who've been forgiven much, love much. You don't learn that at seminary. You learn it in the school of Jesus Christ. I've said my piece on that now. And I think I should not say more. Let's pray. Jesus, um, I prayed uh, with a friend today that you would come back right now. And you're not here in the body. But you said, uh, I have to go so that the Spirit can come. And so we um, endure not seeing you face to face. To receive the gift of the Spirit. So Holy Spirit be with us and help us. Make dead men alive. And make the hearts of your people bigger. And more gracious. In Jesus name. Amen. Your manhood is a gift given at creation it's the lesson of the garden and sin has made that gift precarious and so all of life feels like a struggle to steal the gift back And the doorway to Christianity begins when the struggle ends, and sometimes the struggle ends when God cripples the struggler. The Father is present and proud and pleased at the river where the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is baptized, but He did not leave us as orphans. And so we have a father who is present and proud and pleased and trusts us to go and do his business. And now we have a tomb that is empty. And there's a lesson to be learned here too. Ernest Hemingway, he tells the story of uh, an advertisement he came across when he was living in Spain uh, the advertisement is published in the local, the local to Madrid newspaper called the Liberal. And the advertisement is very, very simple. Uh, it, it read like this, Paco, meet me at the Hotel Montaña at noon. 
on Tuesday. All is forgiven. Love, Papa. Hemingway says, when the father arrived at the Hotel Montaigne, there were 800 boys named Paco. (laughs) Waiting for their fathers and the forgiveness they never thought was possible. This is our last session, well, the last session where I'm, I'm speaking. We have a session tomorrow for testimony. This is really my last time to speak with you. And I feel a sense of urgency on two fronts. I feel a sense of urgency to say things to you uh, in a way that you hear them. I also feel a sense of urgency for you. And the sense of urgency for you is that uh, there is so much momentum and support to what God's doing in your life right now. And the momentum and support is going to diminish at noon tomorrow. And it will just keep diminishing. It doesn't mean that God cannot capitalize on this and do something with it. Uh, I just want you to know that uh, the wise thing to do would be for you to capitalize on the momentum and support you have here right now. And so there's a sense of urgency for me. There's a sense of urgency for you. Your time is running out. where the support and the momentum that is to your advantage is yours. There's a sense of urgency. This is the lesson of the empty tomb of Jesus Christ. The cross is God's announcement to the world that He loves it. The cross is God's announcement to the world that He is holding nothing back from you. He has given you everything He has. There's nothing left to give. This is what the words of Jesus Christ mean on Golgotha. It's finished. I have nothing left to give. Well, what is the empty tomb? The empty tomb is the advertisement that God takes out in the local paper. All is forgiven. Love, Papa. That's the lesson of the tomb. I'll be in Mark chapter 16 if you want to follow along. Starting at verse 1, After the Sabbath, Mary Magdalene, Salome, Mary the mother of James, bought some spices to put on Jesus' body. Very early on Sunday morning, just as the sun was coming up, they went to the tomb. On their way, they were asking one another, Who will roll away the stone from the entrance for us? But when they looked, they saw the stone had already been rolled away. It was a huge stone. The women went into the tomb... And on the right side, they saw a young man in a white robe, and they were frightened. This is something that I think you and I need to be reminded of, because we've had 2,000 years to get comfortable with the idea of a man raised from the dead. And it might trick you into thinking that on Easter Sunday, the, the faithful followers of Jesus Christ were really excited to meet the risen Son of God. But the faithful followers of Jesus Christ were not really excited to meet the risen Son of God because not one of them thought there was going to be a risen Son of God. No one, no one expects the resurrection. You think that skepticism is bad right now? 
It's only because you weren't at the tomb on Easter Sunday. There are no Christians on Easter Sunday. Not one. No one expects the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. What are they doing? They are preparing to take care of a dead body. They are going to roll away a tomb and they're going to put spices and they're going to put ointment on a corpse out of respect. And there's a lot of regret at the graveside, isn't there? A lot of regret at the graveside. Erica Brown, scholar in residence at the Jewish Federation of Greater Washington, author of a book, Happier Endings, Overcoming the Fear of Death, asked her students, give me a list of regrets. Little ones and big ones. Here's some little ones. I didn't participate more in school. I'll tell you, I never regretted that. I had just about flunked out of high school my senior year. And at the time that I went to the Military College of South Carolina, the Citadel, you only had to spell your name right on the application. Um, I had to turn in two applications. They're more selective now. Here's a regret, a little one. I didn't take more vacations. Here's another one. I haven't lost any weight. I think that's just a glass half empty. You know, people always talk about we want to gain things, and I've gained a lot of weight. Never regretted eating a donut. But these are regrets they have. Here's some big regrets. These are, these are regrets. These are big ones. I wish I'd spent more time with my mother the year she died. I never said thank you to my father. I gave up on too many dreams. I was in Alabama over the Christmas break. That's where I'm from. Um, I'm from Alabama, and my wife's family still lives in Alabama, so we get to go to Alabama. We have a good excuse to go to Alabama. I think it's the greatest state in the Union. And um, go home, and uh, I, had, I had to get away for just for a few hours. Because my wife wanted this thing called a weighted blanket. You know what that is? I didn't know what it was. So I told my son, let's go get the weighted blanket. He didn't know what it was either. And we bought the wrong one. (laughs) To get to my wife's house, uh, to the store called Dillard's, where we can get this blanket, we have to drive past the cemetery where my father is. I have never taken anyone, not even my wife, to the graveside of my father. I don't know why I did it, but I pulled in with my son riding shotgun. We both got real quiet. He knew, he knew what it was. I didn't even have to tell him. And we got out of the car and we walked. There's so many things I wanted to say. All I could get out was, well, Dad, this is your grandson. And then we both burst into tears. He's not going to get to meet his grandson, this side of the kingdom, because death is final and full of regret. It's final and it's full of regret, whether it's the 
death of a parent or a friend or the death of a dream. The worst regrets always revolve around death because there's a finality to it that can't be undone. Why do I bring all this up? Well, I bring it up because the people who are going to the tomb on Easter Sunday are filled with regret for their pastor, for their friend, for their brother. It's not unreasonable to think that there were things they wanted to say to him. It's not unreasonable to think some of them wish they could have been braver two days earlier. It's not unreasonable that some of them would have thought, I wish I could have just stayed by him a little bit longer than I did. It's not unreasonable. Regrets by the graveside are enormous. But something happens that causes the regrets to diminish rapidly. And what causes the regrets to diminish rapidly is the tomb is empty. J.R.R. Tolkien is a great friend of C.S. Lewis. I don't know if you knew that. J.R.R. Tolkien, if you don't know, he wrote uh, The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. And he wrote a really wonderful little essay on fairy tales. It's called On Fairy Stories. And he said, uh, all great fairy stories have... Uh, a problem that ends with a catastrophe that is final and ruinous. But that's not all that the great fairy stories have. He said the great fairy stories always have a eucatastrophe. You know that word? Probably not because he made it up. It comes from two words. The first word is Eucharist. Do you know what Eucharist means? It's an old Greek word, and it means thanksgiving. And he marries it to this word catastrophe, so it's a eucatastrophe. Okay? What is a eucatastrophe? It is something catastrophic that happens to an evil thing. And because catastrophe happens to evil... It's a eucatastrophe. We give thanks for it. What happens when they go to the tomb on Easter Sunday? There's been a eucatastrophe. Because the man Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has done something catastrophic to death. I was reading Dante's Inferno a few years ago. I don't know if you've ever read Dante's Inferno. There's an, it, it takes place on Good Friday, by the way. And there's this amazing scene where uh, they're, they're touring hell. It sounds pretty grim. That's the basis of the, of the book is they're touring hell and they get to a section of hell where uh, they have to cross a bridge. But the bridge is out. In hell. The bridge is out. And Dante, he turns to his demon escort and he says, the, it looks like you guys need to spend some money on infrastructure. Your bridge is out. And the demon says something amazing. What the demon says is we've been trying to repair that bridge for 1,343 days, or years. Because 1,340 some years ago, the Son of God came down here and ruined us. And we've never been able to recover. It's a eucatastrophe. 
you know, Jesus, death, death, one of the things that dawned on me as I was standing at the graveside of my dad with my son is that when, uh, when a man is important to that dies in your family, it's like a bomb that goes off for generations. And so I really hate death. I was, uh, the first man I ever watched die was in Myrtle Beach. And I sat with him and held his hand as he died. And there was a hospice worker there. And his wife was there. And when he died, I remember the hospice worker, she said, death is a friend that we have to welcome. And I understand why she said that. One of the reasons she said it, she had nothing better to say. It made me so angry. And this poor man, his name was Mark. I loved him. And I leaned over his body and I pointed at the hospice nurse and I said, You're a liar! Because the New Testament calls death the last enemy. It's not a friend. It's a tyrant. And what does Jesus say when he meets John in, in, the, in the book Revelation? Jesus appears to John in Revelation. John says he's freaked out. And he fell down as if he was dead. And Jesus looked at John and said, Don't be afraid. I have been to death and hell. And I took the keys. That's a catastrophe. It's a catastrophe. They are coming to terms with the catastrophe. I imagine it must have been enormously confusing. The men said, Don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus from Nazareth, who was nailed to a cross. He's not here. You can see where they put his body. Now go. Tell the disciples. What comes next, I really want you to pay attention to. Go tell the disciples, especially Peter. That he will go on ahead of you and meet you. What stood out to you? Especially Peter. Why especially Peter? John Bunyan wrote a little book. I don't know if you know who John Bunyan is, but he wrote The Pilgrim's Progress. And he wrote another little book. It's a very fine book. And the book is called uh, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. And... uh, The entire theme of the book is that Jesus' number one agenda on Easter Sunday is to make sure the ones who have wronged him the worst know it's okay. Especially Peter. Why especially Peter? You may not know. I don't want to assume that you know. Peter is called to be a follower of Jesus Christ. He's given a name. The rock upon whom I'll build my church. He is always the first to preach and the first to lay on hands and the first to go. He's the most committed, zealous follower of Jesus. 
And they spend three years together. Jesus and Peter are friends. There's 12 followers, but there's three friends. Peter, James, and John, and Jesus. And on the night that Jesus is betrayed, Jesus says, all of you will abandon me tonight. And Peter says, I won't. They might. But I won't. And Jesus says, you will. And Peter would not let it go. I'll go to jail with you. I'll even die with you. And Jesus says, before the cock crows, you will have done it three times. Talk about graveside regrets. The last time Peter sees Jesus before Jesus dies, he has denied him for the third time and they lock eyes. That's the last time he sees him before he dies. Talk about regrets. And so Jesus... Jesus has a priority on Sunday morning, on Resurrection Sunday. And the priority is, all is forgiven, especially Peter. Meet me on the mountain. Love Jesus. It's not just a eucatastrophe for death. It's a eucatastrophe for Peter's regret. Because the resurrection of Jesus from the dead makes Peter's regrets obsolete. Jesus can redeem your sins in the same way that Joseph believes God has redeemed the evil done to him. You meant it for evil... God meant it for good. Does not mean that God sent evil to you. Someone did evil to you. God got mixed up in it and worked it for good. That's what it means. The gravest evil ever done was the crucifixion of Jesus. God mixed up his grace in it and meant it for good. God can redeem our sins and he can redeem our pain but what I want you to know about the regrets of Peter on Easter Sunday is he actually just made them obsolete and God can do that too and this is what I want you to notice that Peter does Peter has been a recipient of especially Peter I want you to especially tell Peter all is forgiven Peter's been a recipient of being singled out. Peter's been a recipient of the Son of God zeroing in on him and saying, make sure he knows. What is the first record we have of Peter's ministry after this? Jerusalem. Peter has been singled out. 
Make sure Peter especially knows. So what does Peter do? He says, I have a responsibility to go especially to the city that said, crucify him and make sure they know all is forgiven. So that's what he does. He goes into the city that said crucify him and he says very bluntly, you killed the Lord of glory and all is forgiven. You can have the Holy Spirit. He can live in you and he will cry out, Abba, Father. Because all is forgiven. What he received, he made sure he passed on quickly. I don't know if you know um, who Chris Christofferson is. Yeah. You knew we were going there, didn't you? I'm going to tell you about him. You might just think he's a long hair hippie. Some of you have called me that since I've been here. He's not originally a long haired hippie. Originally, he's the son of a very prestigious military family. And they have been famous military officers going back for generations. What do you think the expectation is for Chris? That he'd carry on the family tradition. And he does. He's a Rhodes Scholar, he's brilliant. But he leaves uh, the Air Force and he moves to Nashville to pursue a music career. And you know what his mama did? His mama wrote him a letter. And in the letter, his mama said, you have brought shame and disgrace on our family. We disown you. Now he's still alive, his parents are dead. That was the last thing, that was the last communication he ever received from his parents. What happens to somebody who's been disowned by their mom and dad? What do you think they do? Well, there's a lot of outcomes. The outcomes are not predetermined. But it hurts. And you gotta, you gotta numb it, don't you? And so that's what he does. He numbs it with alcohol and he numbs it with drugs. And he just happens to be on tour with a bunch of people that were running around with Johnny Cash. I don't know if you know what that means. But what it meant was, after he'd stayed up all night drinking and smoking weed, these Christians that were backing up Cash said, we're going to church. And they drug him to church. And he stank. And he looked like a mess. And the minister preached the gospel. And at the end of the message, asked if anyone wanted to come to know Jesus Christ. And Christofferson, you can, he tells the story, you can watch it. He says, I thought, who would be dumb enough to do that? He said, that's when I noticed my arm went up. And the preacher said, you, come on down. And he said, who'd be dumb enough to go down to the front of the church? Well, he was dumb enough to go down to the front of the church. 
And he got down there and um, the preacher had him kneel. And the preacher said, are you ready to believe in Jesus Christ? And he said, I don't know. But when he said, I don't know, he said, a grace and a forgiveness fell on me that I didn't even know I needed. And he wrote a song about it. Why me, Lord, what have I ever done to deserve even one of the pleasures I've known? Tell me, Lord, what did I ever do that was worth loving you or the kindness you've shown? Lord, help me, Jesus, I've wasted it so. Help me, Jesus, I know what I am. Now that I know I needed you so, help me, Jesus, my soul's in your hand. Tell me, Lord, if you think there's a way I can try to repay all I've taken from you. Maybe, Lord, I can show someone else what I've been through myself on my way back to you. Lord, help me, Jesus, I wasted it so. Help me, Jesus, I know what I am. Now that I know I needed you so, help me, Jesus. My soul's in your hand. Jesus, my soul's in your hand. I like that story. And I like that song. Some of you have heard me tell that story, and some of you have heard me sing that song. I sang that song in Bluffton recently. And this man came up to me. And he said, I met him once. Now that's almost like somebody tell me they met the Apostle Paul. You know, I went. <laughs> Where did you meet him? I met him in Italy. What in the world? What's Chris Christopherson doing in Italy? He was on a mission trip. That's what, he said. That's what this guy told me. He's on a mission trip. A mission to who? Well, he said, I'm a military brat. He was on a mission to military brats. What was the mission? He told us we had a father in heaven who loved us. Especially Peter. We disown you. I have a father in heaven. Especially, I need to make sure people know that. I want to close. This this is it. Two things. Here's uh, thing number one. 
If you're a Christian, and what I mean by you're a Christian is I don't mean that you're on the rolls at St. Magnificence, wherever. I mean that you have a living faith in Jesus Christ. If you love much, yeah, then I, I want to I want to let you know I'm recruiting. I'm recruiting people who've been loved much and who now love much. And I have an invitation for you. And the invitation is the world is suffocating for love. And I'm recruiting people who are ready to put their heart on the altar and slaughter it in front of everybody. If that's what it takes to convince people that they're loved by Jesus Christ. Now I'm going to tell you, I'm going to say this is going to sound kind of scandalous. I don't mean for it to sound scandalous. I've been so blessed by the preaching on the sufficiency of Jesus. Here's the scandalous part. Don't freak out. He's not sufficient in in this way. He never intended for you to cultivate a private relationship with him and not experience his love through other people. I work with fatherless young men. Some of them, their fathers are alive, but they're fatherless. And I remember one of them, he said to me, I have a father in heaven. That's when it dawned on me, God's plan for you is not that. That is not God's plan for you. You have a father in heaven who loves you enough to send you fathers. And brothers who can touch you and hold you and look you in the eye. God's plan to love the world as a father is through fathers. Jesus' plan to love the world as a brother is through brothers. So I'm recruiting men to take seriously the mission to go home and put on the responsibility of a father to the congregations they go back to. I'm recruiting men to take seriously the responsibility to put on the calling of a brother and treat the people in their congregation like blood and to love them in the same way you've been loved by Jesus. Hold nothing back. Do not withhold your blessing. Give it away.
I'm recruiting. Not everybody's in the room is a Christian, though. I could imagine there's two kinds, although there may be more. I'll tell you the most dangerous version first is the self-deceived. This one's in church every Sunday. You are the person that keeps me up at night. You've heard about these things and you believe them. There's no power in it for you though, is there? There's just no power in it. There's no love in it. Listen, it's not a critique. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm trying to let you know that the attendance and the membership and the serving on the committees and the going to all is really just a fig leaf that has kept God at bay. And what really needs to happen is the fig leaf needs to go away. And you need to come before Jesus with nothing. And you need to learn to sing some of the things that they sang in the songs. I'm weak. I'm vain. I've wasted it. Bless me. He does not withhold his blessings. Samuel Rutherford, he said that Jesus has been knocking on the door of the human heart for 2,000 years. His arm is not tired. Others of you are here. You might have gotten drugged here. You don't really want to be here. But God did start to do something in your life. You're a much easier case than who I just spoke about. What do you need to do? You need to go and walk about. Here it is. I'm not going to hold your hand. I'm not going to helicopter parent you. I am here. I'm proud of you. I'm pleased with you. I really do love you. Now I'm going to trust you to do something. If God has worked in your life, I am trusting you to go to the man that brought you or to a prayer minister. And I want you to tell them, God has begun something with me. I don't even know what to do with it. Would you pray for me? You might just find a forgiveness you didn't even know you needed. Washes over you. And you'll ask, why me, Lord, as well? I imagine some of you will take me up on that tonight. And you and I will be in heaven with Jesus. Many of our questions will be answered. But the, you know the one that we will never have an answer to? Why me? What have I ever done? I imagine the closest that we'll get to the answer 
It's because you're mine. Let's pray. I pray for men who know the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, receive the Holy Spirit. I pray for the men who know the name of Jesus Christ that they would freely impart the Spirit of God, the Spirit of adoption on a world starved with love. And I pray for those who have built up strong walls of religion. And I thank you that we have a Father who can break down gates of bronze. I pray for those who know that you're doing something in their life right now. And I pray they would hear the privilege of the invitation. We trust you enough to do something with what God is doing in your life. Now go do it. And join the society of men who love Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks, Rob, for your boldness.